Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Diego, are you ready for a leap into the world of particle accelerators? You bet, Charlotte. Particle accelerators are fascinating. They're used in everything from semiconductor applications to medical imaging and therapy. But they're so massive, right? Absolutely, Diego. They can stretch for kilometers, making them incredibly expensive and limited to a few select locations. But here's the kicker. Let me guess, someone's made a compact version? Bingo. A team of researchers led by Bjorn Manuel Heglich, associate professor of physics at UT and CEO of Taiyu Systems, have developed a compact particle accelerator that's less than 20 meters long. Wow, that's a significant reduction in size. But what about the power? It packs quite a punch, Diego. This compact accelerator produces an electron beam with an energy of 10 billion electron volts. 10 billion electron volts. That's incredible. And all this in just 10 centimeters of space? Exactly. The team is exploring a variety of uses for their accelerator, from testing electronics for space travel to developing new cancer therapies and advanced medical imaging techniques. That sounds revolutionary, Charlotte. But how does it work? Well, Diego, an extremely powerful laser strikes helium gas, heats it into a plasma, and creates waves that kick electrons from the gas out in a high-energy electron beam. That sounds like a sci-fi movie. And I'm guessing this isn't the first of its kind? You're right, Diego. The concept for Wakefield Laser Accelerators was first described back in 1979. But Hegelic and his team's key advance relies on nanoparticles. An auxiliary laser strikes a metal plate inside the gas cell, injecting a stream of metal nanoparticles that boost the energy delivered to electrons from the waves. So they're using nanoparticles to supercharge the process. That's ingenious. It certainly is, Diego, and for this experiment, they used the Texas Petawatt laser, one of the world's most powerful pulsed lasers. But their long-term goal is to drive their system with a tabletop laser that can fire thousands of times per second. A tabletop laser? Now that's compact. Indeed, Diego, it's a huge step forward in accelerator technology, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Absolutely, Charlotte. This could revolutionize a whole host of fields, from medicine to material science. From groundbreaking advancements in particle accelerator technology, we now turn our attention to a more sobering topic. The interconnected issues of climate change and habitat loss are having profound effects on our planet's ecosystems. As we'll explore next, the impacts are far-reaching, affecting everything from wildfires to wildlife populations and even human displacement. Stay tuned as we delve into these pressing environmental challenges. Charlotte, it's becoming increasingly apparent that the loss of nature and the climate crisis are two sides of the same coin. They're intertwined, with the escalating climate crisis resulting in habitat destruction, which in turn worsens climate change and wildlife loss. It's a vicious cycle. Right, Diego. And we've seen some of the devastating effects of this cycle. Take wildfires, for instance. They're becoming more frequent and extensive. This year, smoke even reached the North Pole for the first time. And these wildfires aren't just causing havoc on human health and infrastructure, they're also destroying environments and wildlife. The Australian bushfire season of 2019 and 2020 resulted in nearly 3 billion animals being killed or displaced. So it's clear that better landscape management and supporting natural landscapes is key to mitigating these issues. 
But let's not forget that many of these landscapes, like peatlands, permafrost, and forests, are carbon-rich. They absorb carbon dioxide and store it. Destroying these landscapes releases that carbon. Indeed, Charlotte. And as temperatures rise, animals are having to adapt their behavior to cope. Brown bears in Greece are becoming nocturnal, African wild dogs have less time to hunt due to rising temperatures, and nearly every sea turtle born in Florida in recent years has been female. These changes in wildlife populations are just the tip of the iceberg. And let's not forget the oceans. Marine heat waves have been recorded around the globe, and last year over one billion marine animals were believed to have died along Canada's Pacific coast due to extreme temperatures. Yes, and the ocean is also the largest store of carbon in the world. But it's absorbing too much carbon from the atmosphere, which is making the seas more acidic and negatively impacting marine life. Overexploitation is exacerbating these problems. It's a complex problem, Diego. Poaching and the loss of fruit-eating animals in tropical forests are driving up carbon emissions as well. These animals disperse the seeds of long-lived hardwood trees, which sequester the most carbon. With these animals gone, hardwood trees are being replaced with softwood trees, which store less carbon. And this is why restoring nature is so crucial. It's estimated that a third of climate mitigation over the next decade could come from restoring nature so that it can absorb carbon. But this is easier said than done. The UK's tree planting ambitions, for example, are at risk due to drought and pests. And on top of all of this, the climate crisis is displacing people. Last year, the number of people displaced around the world topped 100 million for the first time. Rising sea levels, drought, desertification, increased temperatures, more frequent cyclones, and flooding are just some of the reasons why people are being forced to leave their homes. It's a dire situation, Charlotte. And as regions previously unsuitable for farming become suitable due to the climate crisis, this could have a significant impact on nature. These new agricultural frontiers are located in biodiversity hotspots and critical bird habitats. It's clear that we need to address both nature loss and the climate crisis together. They're separate issues, but they're inextricably linked. Absolutely, Charlotte, and we need to act fast. Having just delved into the interconnected issues of nature loss and the climate crisis, it's clear that immediate and comprehensive action is needed. Speaking of action, a new report from the Climate Governance Commission is making waves. This report, titled Governing Our Planetary Emergency, is not just highlighting the problems, but also proposing solutions. Let's take a closer look. We're diving into the deep end today, Charlotte, with a new report from the Climate Governance Commission. It's calling for unprecedented collective wisdom, political courage, and accountability to steer us away from catastrophic climate change. That's right, Diego. This report titled Governing Our Planetary Emergency presents 15 actions that need to be taken across various sectors, from multilateral institutions and national governments to businesses and international law. And it's not just a bunch of vague suggestions. The report outlines 10 near-term proposals to be achieved in the next one to three years and five medium-term actions for the next three to five years. The Climate Governance Commission, which is chaired by notable figures such as former President of Ireland Mary Robinson and President of the 73rd UN General Assembly Maria Fernanda Espinosa, has certainly put a lot of thought into this. And let's not forget Dr. Johan Rockström, 
the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. They've essentially created a climate to-do list, and it's been released just in time for COP28, the annual UN climate conference. Among the near-term recommendations, they're urging for improvements in climate COPs for better delivery, action, and accountability. They're also calling for the declaration of a planetary emergency by the UN General Assembly at next year's Summit of the Future. That's not all. They're proposing a grand bargain among the big four GHG-emitting nations, which are China, the US, India, and the EU. The Commission is calling for these nations to link, improve, and establish institutional infrastructures to evaluate the climate performance of goods and companies. And they're not letting fossil fuel companies off the hook either. The Commission is calling for these companies, their executives, and associations to be held accountable for their actions. And they're pushing for renewed efforts to bridge the great climate finance divide. This includes debt forgiveness, reforms to multilateral development banks, and balanced global carbon taxes and tariffs to fund climate mitigation and adaptation in low- and middle-income countries. Mary Robinson, the Commission co-chair and report co-author, said, We stand at the cusp of a green energy transformation, poised to shape a fairer, cleaner, healthier future. The means to finance the climate action we need to see are within reach, but it is good governance that holds the key. The report is a sobering look at the state of our planetary emergency, almost a decade since the adoption of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It warns that we're on a dangerous trajectory of intense suffering and heightened inequality. Still, the report authors remain hopeful. They believe that an all-of-society emergency effort can adopt their 15 specific and near-term actions in months, not decades, to make critical reforms and engage the relevant stakeholders in building a safer and more just tomorrow. Maria Fernanda Espinoza said, in the face of a deepening planetary crisis, it falls upon us to be the architects of brighter and safer societies. The time to avert the climate crisis is now. And we can all play a part in this. The report is available for everyone to view and download on the Stimson Center website. It's a must-read for anyone interested in understanding the current state of our planet and what we can do to help. From a comprehensive report on climate governance to a deep dive into the specifics of one greenhouse gas, our coverage of the climate crisis continues. We've looked at the big picture, and now let's zoom in on a smaller yet potent player in global warming, methane. This gas, often overlooked, could hold the key to slowing down the warming trend. But how do we tackle methane emissions? And could there be a way to remove it directly from the air? Stay tuned as we explore these questions and more. Charlotte, the world is getting warmer and the weather more extreme. This summer was the hottest ever recorded on Earth, and 2023 is on track to be the hottest year. But there's a gas we've overlooked that might be our best bet for slowing this warming trend. You're referring to methane, aren't you, Diego? Methane is a potent greenhouse gas that's relatively short-lived in the atmosphere. It lasts about 12 years, while CO2 can stick around for hundreds of years. And on a molecule-per-molecule -molecule basis, methane warms the atmosphere more than 80 times as much as, as an equivalent amount of CO2. Is that correct? Absolutely, Charlotte. And we already have strategies for cutting methane emissions, such as fixing natural gas leaks, phasing out coal, eating less meat and dairy, and electrifying transportation and appliances. 
But some climate scientists, including Rob Jackson from Stanford University, say we need to go further. They want to develop ways to remove methane directly from the air. But capturing methane is a tricky business. Yes, Diego, it's a challenging molecule to capture. Most ideas are still in early research stages. But there are promising approaches, like re-engineering bacteria that are already pros at eating methane and developing catalytic reactors to place in coal mine vents and other methane-rich places to chemically transform the gas. It sounds like a race against time, doesn't it? It certainly does, Charlotte. As Desiree Plata, a civil and environmental engineer at MIT, puts it, methane is a sprint and CO2 is a marathon. But there's also the possibility of geoengineering, which is a more extreme approach to speed up methane's natural breakdown by changing the chemistry of the atmosphere itself. However, this comes with its own set of challenges and potential risks. Indeed, Diego. For instance, injecting iron aerosols into the air over the ocean could have the opposite effect, breaking down ozone first before attacking methane. This could result in an increase in the concentration and lifetime of methane molecules in the atmosphere. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? It is, Charlotte. And we need to be aware of the potential adverse effects of these interventions, like worsening air quality or depleting our ozone layer. But as Natalie Mahawald, an atmospheric chemist at Cornell University, says, we're just throwing out ideas here because we're in a terrible, terrible position. It's a desperate call for more researchers, research funding, and companies to join the fight against global warming. It's not something for our grandchildren. It's here, 